Chapter Six, Part Two of the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, by Charles Darwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Your reader, Michael Armenta. In the foregoing cases, we see the same end gained and the same function performed in beings not at all or only remotely allied by organs in appearance though not in development closely similar on the other hand it is a common rule throughout nature that the same end should be gained even sometimes in the case of closely related beings by the most diversified means how differently constructed is the feathered wing of a bird and the membrane-covered wing of a bat and still more so the four wings of a butterfly the two wings of a fly and the two wings with the elytra of a beetle bivalve shells are made to open and shut but on what a number of patterns is the hinge constructed from the long row of nearly interlocking teeth in a nucula to the simple ligament of a muscle seeds are disseminated by their minuteness by their capsule being converted into a light balloon-like envelope by being embedded in pulp or flesh formed of the most diverse parts and rendered nutritious as well as conspicuously coloured so as to attract and be devoured by birds by having hooks and grapnels of many kinds and serrated awns so as to adhere to the fur of quadrupeds and by being furnished with wings and plumes as different in shape as they are elegant in structure so as to be wafted by every breeze they will give one other instance for the subject of the same end being gained by the most diversified means well deserves attention some authors maintain that organic beings have been formed in many ways for the sake of mere varieties almost like toys in a shop but such a view of nature is incredible with plants having separated sexes and with those in which though hermaphrodites the pollen does not spontaneously fall on the stigma some aid is necessary for their fertilization with several kinds this is effected by the pollen grains which are light and incoherent being blown by the wind through mere chance on to the stigma and this is the simplest plan which can well be conceived an almost equally simple though very different plan occurs in many plants in which a symmetrical flower secretes a few drops of nectar and is consequently visited by insects and these carry the pollen from the anthers to the stigma from this simple stage we may pass through an inexhaustible number of contrivances all for the same purpose and effected in essentially the same manner but entailing changes in every part of the flower the nectar may be stored in variously shaped receptacles with the stamens and pistils modified in many ways sometimes forming trap-like contrivances and sometimes capable of neatly adapted movements through irritability or elasticity from such structures we may advance till we come to such a case of extraordinary adaptation 
as that lately described by Dr. Kruger, in the Corianthes. This orchid has part of its labellum, or lower lip, hollowed out into a great bucket, into which drops of almost pure water continually fall from two secreting horns which stand above it, and when the bucket is half full, the water overflows by a spout on one side. The basal part of the labellum stands over the bucket, and is itself hollowed out into a sort of chamber with two lateral entrances. Within this chamber there are curious fleshy riches. The most ingenious man, if he had not witnessed what takes place, could never have imagined what purpose all these parts serve. But Dr. Kruger saw crowds of large humble bees visiting the gigantic flowers of this orchid, not in order to suck nectar, but to gnaw off the ridges within the chamber above the bucket. In doing this, they frequently pushed each other into the bucket, and their wings, being thus wetted, could not fly away, but were compelled to crawl out through the passage formed by the spout or overflow. Dr. Kruger saw a, quote, continual procession, end quote, of bees thus crawling out of their involuntary bath. The passage is narrow, and is roofed over by the column, so that a bee, in forcing its way out, first rubs its back against the viscid stigma, and then against the viscous glands of the pollen masses. The pollen masses are thus glued to the back of the bee, which first happens to crawl out through the passage of a lately expanded flower, and are thus carried away. Dr. Kruger sent me a flower in spirits of wine, with a bee which he had killed before it had quite crawled out, with a pollen mass still fastened to his back. When the bee, thus provided, flies to another flower, or to the same flower a second time, and is pushed by its comrades into the bucket, and then crawls out by the passage, and forces them to crawl out through the spout, and rub against the properly placed viscid pollen masses, and the viscid stigma. The construction of the flower in another closely allied orchid, namely the catacetum, is widely different, though serving the same end, and is equally curious. Bees visit these flowers, like those of the Corianthes, in order to gnaw the labellum. In doing this they inevitably touch a long, tapering, sensitive projection, or, as I have called it, the antenna. This antenna, when touched, transmits a sensation or vibration to a certain membrane, which is instantly ruptured. This sets free a spring by which the pollen mass is shot forth, like an arrow, in the right direction, and adheres by its viscid extremity to the back of the bee. The pollen mass of the male plant, for the sexes are separate in this orchid, is thus carried to the flower of the female plant, where it is brought into contact with the stigma, which is viscid enough to break certain elastic threads and retain the pollen, thus effecting fertilization. How, it may be asked, in the foregoing and in innumerable other instances, 
can we understand the graduated scale of complexity and the multifarious means for gaining the same end the answer no doubt is as already remarked that when the two forms vary which already differ from each other in some slight degree the variability will not be of the same exact nature and consequently the results obtained through natural selection for the same general purpose will not be the same we should also bear in mind that every highly developed organism has passed through many changes and that each modified structure tends to be inherited so that each modification will not readily be quite lost but may be again and again further altered hence the structure of each part of each species for whatever purpose it may serve is the sum of many inherited changes through which the species has passed during its successive adaptations to changed habits and conditions of life finally then although in many cases it is most difficult even to conjecture by what transitions organs could have arrived at their present state yet considering how small the proportion of living and known forms is to the extinct and unknown i have been astonished how rarely an organ can be named towards which no transitional grade is known to lead it is certainly true that new organs appearing as if created for some special purpose rarely or never appear in any being as indeed is shown by that old but somewhat exaggerated canon in natural history of quote, natura non facit saltum end quote. we meet with this admission in the writings of almost every experienced naturalist or as milne edwards has well expressed it quote, nature is prodigal in variety but niggard in innovation End quote. why under the theory of creation should there be so much variety and so little real novelty why should all the parts and organs of many independent beings each supposed to have been separately created for its own proper place in nature be so commonly linked together by graduated steps why should not nature take a sudden leap from structure to structure on the theory of natural selection we can clearly understand why she should not for natural selection acts only by taking advantage of slight successive variations she can never take a great and sudden leap but must advance by the short and sure though slow steps organs of little apparent importance as affected by natural selection as natural selection acts by life and death by the survival of the fittest and by the destruction of the less well-fitted individuals i have sometimes felt great difficulty in understanding the origin or formation of parts of little importance almost as great though of a very different kind as in the case of the most perfect and complex organs in the first place we are much too ignorant in regard to the whole economy of any one organic being to say what slight modifications would be of importance or not in a former chapter i have given instances of very trifling characters 
such as the down on fruit, and the colour of its flesh, the colour of the skin, the hair of quadrupeds, which, from being correlated with constitutional differences, or from determining the attack of insects, might assuredly be acted on by natural selection. The tail of the giraffe looks like an artificially constructed fly-flapper, and it seems at first incredible that this could have been adapted for its present purpose by successive slight modifications, each better and better fitted, for so trifling an object as to drive away flies. Yet we should pause before being too positive, even in this case, for we know that the distribution and existence of cattle and other animals in South America absolutely depend on their power of resisting the attacks of insects, so that individuals, which could by any means defend themselves from these small enemies, would be able to range into new pastures, and thus gain a great advantage. It is not that the larger quadrupeds are actually destroyed, except in some rare cases, by flies, but they are incessantly harassed and their strength reduced so that they are more subject to disease, or not so well enabled in a coming dearth to search for food, or to escape from beasts of prey. Organs, now of trifling importance, have probably, in some cases, been of high importance to an early progenitor, and, after having been slowly perfected at a former period, have been transmitted to existing species in nearly the same state, although now of very slight use, but any actually injurious deviations in their structure would of course have been checked by natural selection. Seeing how important an organ of locomotion the tail is in most aquatic animals, its general presence and use for many purposes in so many land animals, which in their lungs or modified swim-bladders betray their aquatic origin, may perhaps be thus accounted for. A well-developed tail, having been formed in an aquatic animal, it might subsequently come to be worked in for all sorts of purposes, as a fly-flapper, an organ of prehension, or as an aid in turning, as in the case of the dog, though the aid in this latter respect must be slight, for the hare, with hardly any tail, can double still more quickly. In the second place, we may easily err in attributing importance to characters, and in believing that they have been developed through natural selection. We must by no means overlook the effects of the definite action of changed conditions of life, of so-called spontaneous variations, which seem to depend in a quite subordinate degree on the nature of the conditions, of the tendency to reversion on long-lost characters, of the complex laws of growth, such as of correlation, comprehension, or the pressure of one part on another, etc., and, finally, of sexual selection, by which characters of use to one sex are often gained and then transmitted more or less perfectly to the other sex, though of no use to the sex. But structures thus indirectly gained, although at first of no advantage to a species, may subsequently have been taken advantage of by its modified descendants under new conditions of life and newly acquired habits. If green woodpeckers alone had existed, and we did not know that there were many black and pied kinds, I dare say that we should have thought that the green color was a beautiful adaptation to conceal this tree-frequenting bird from its enemies, and, consequently, that it was a character of importance 
and had been acquired through natural selection. As it is, the color is probably in chief part due to sexual selection. A trailing palm in the Malay archipelago climbs the loftiest trees by the aid of exquisitely constructed hooks clustered around the ends of the branches, and this contrivance, no doubt, is of the highest service to the plant. But as we see nearly similar hooks on many trees, which are not climbers, and which, as there is reason to believe from the distribution of the thorn-bearing species in Africa and South America, serve as a defense against browsing quadrupeds, so the spikes on the palm may at first have been developed for this object, and subsequently have been improved and taken advantage of by the plant as it underwent further modification and became a climber. The naked skin on the head of a vulture is generally considered as a direct adaptation for wallowing in putridity, and so it may be, or it may possibly be due to the direct action of putrid matter. But we should be very cautious in drawing any such inference, when we see that the skin on the head of the clean-feeding male turkey is likewise naked. The sutures in the skulls of young mammals have been advanced as a beautiful adaptation for aiding parturition, and no doubt they facilitate, or may be indispensable for this act. But as sutures occur in the skulls of young birds and reptiles, which have only to escape from a broken egg, we may infer that this structure has arisen from the laws of growth, and has been taken advantage of in the parturition of the higher animals. We are profoundly ignorant of the cause of each slight variation, or individual difference, and we are immediately made conscious of this by reflecting on the differences between the breeds of our domesticated animals in different countries, more especially in the less civilized countries, where there has been but little methodical selection. Animals kept by savages in different countries often have to struggle for their own subsistence, and are exposed to a certain extent to natural selection and individuals with slightly different constitutions would succeed best under different climates with cattle susceptibility to the attacks of flies is correlated with color as is the liability to be poisoned by certain plants so that even color would be thus subjected to the action of natural selection some observers are convinced that a damp climate affects the growth of the hair and that with the hair the horns are correlated. Mountain breeds always differ from lowland breeds, and a mountainous country would probably affect the hind limbs from exercising them more, and possibly even the form of the pelvis. And then, by the law of homologous variation, the front limbs and the head would probably be affected. The shape, also, of the pelvis might affect, by pressure, the shape of certain parts of the young in the womb. The laborious breathing necessary in high regions tends, as we have good reason to believe, to increase the size of the chest, and again correlation would come into play. The effects of lessened exercise, together with abundant food on the whole organization, is probably still more important and this, as H. von Nathusius has lately shown in his excellent treatise, is apparently one chief cause of the great modification which the breeds of swine have undergone. 
but we are far too ignorant to speculate on the relative importance of the several known and unknown causes of variation and i have made these remarks only to show that if we are unable to account for the characteristic differences of our several domestic breeds which nevertheless are generally admitted to have arisen through ordinary generation from one or a few parent stocks we ought not to lay too much stress on our ignorance of the precise cause of the slight analogous differences between true species utilitarian doctrine how far true beauty how acquired the foregoing remarks lead me to say a few words on the protest lately made by some naturalists against the utilitarian doctrine that every detail of structure has been produced for the good of its possessor they believe that many structures have been created for the sake of beauty to delight man or the creator but this latter point is beyond the scope of scientific discussion or for the sake of mere variety a view already discussed such doctrines if true would be absolutely fatal to my theory i fully admit that many structures are now of no direct use to their possessors and may never have been of any use to their progenitors but this does not prove that they were formed solely for beauty or variety no doubt the definite action of changed conditions and the various causes of modifications lately specified have all produced an effect probably a great effect independently of any advantage thus gained but a still more important consideration is that the chief part of the organization of every living creature is due to inheritance and consequently though each being assuredly is well fitted for its place in nature many structures have now no very close and direct relation to present habits of life thus we can hardly believe that the webbed feet of the upland goose or of the frigate bird are of special use to these birds we cannot believe that the similar bones in the arm of the monkey in the foreleg of the horse in the wing of the bat and in the flipper of the seal are of special use to these animals we may safely attribute these structures to inheritance but webbed feet no doubt were as useful to the progenitor of the upland goose and of the frigate bird as they are now to the most aquatic of living birds so we may believe that the progenitor of the seal did not possess a flipper but a foot with five toes fitted for walking or grasping and we may further venture to believe that the several bones in the limbs of the monkey horse and bat were originally developed on the principle of utility probably through the reduction of more numerous bones in the fin of some ancient fish-like progenitor of the whole class it is scarcely possible to decide how much allowance ought to be made for such causes of change as the definite action of external conditions so-called spontaneous variations and the complex laws of growth but with these important exceptions we may conclude that the structure of every living creature either now is or was formerly of some direct or indirect use to its possessor with respect to the belief that organic beings have been created beautiful for the delight of man 
a belief which it has been pronounced is subversive of my whole theory i may first remark that the sense of beauty obviously depends on the nature of the mind irrespective of any real quality in the admired object and that the idea of what is beautiful is not innate or unalterable we see this for instance in the men of different races admiring an entirely different standard of beauty in their women if beautiful objects had been created solely for man's gratification it ought to be shown that before man appeared there was less beauty on the face of the earth than since he came on the stage were the beautiful volute and cone shells of the eocene epoch and the gracefully sculptured ammonites of the secondary period created that man might ages afterwards admire them in his cabinet few objects are more beautiful than the minute siliceous cases of the diatomacy were these created that they might be examined and admired under the higher powers of the microscope the beauty in this latter case and in many others is apparently wholly due to symmetry of growth flowers rank among the most beautiful productions of nature but they have been rendered conspicuous in contrast with the green leaves and in consequence at the same time beautiful so that they may be easily observed by insects i have come to this conclusion from finding it an invariable rule that when a flower is fertilized by the wind it never has a gaily colored corolla several plants habitually produce two kinds of flowers one kind open and colored so as to attract insects the other closed not colored destitute of nectar and never visited by insects hence we may conclude that if insects had not been developed on the face of the earth our plants would not have been decked with beautiful flowers but would only have produced only such poor flowers as we see on our fir oak nut and ash trees on grasses spinach docks and nettles which are all fertilized through the agency of the wind a similar line of argument holds good with fruits that a ripe strawberry or cherry is as pleasing to the eye as to the palate that the gaily coloured fruit of the spindlewood tree and the scarlet berries of the holly are beautiful objects will be admitted by every one but this beauty serves merely as a guide to birds and beasts in order that the fruit may be devoured and the matured seeds disseminated i infer that this is the case from having as yet found no exception to the rule that seeds are always thus disseminated when embedded within a fruit of any kind that is within a fleshy or pulpy envelope if it be coloured of any brilliant tint or rendered conspicuous by being white or black on the other hand i willingly admit that a great number of male animals as all our most gorgeous birds some fishes reptiles and mammals and a host of magnificently coloured butterflies have been rendered beautiful for beauty's sake but this has been effected through sexual selection that is by the more beautiful males having been continually preferred by the females and not for the delight of man so it is with the music of birds we may infer from all this that a nearly similar taste for beautiful colours and for musical sounds 
runs through a large part of the animal kingdom when the female is as beautifully coloured as the male which is not rarely the case with birds and butterflies the cause apparently lies in the colours acquired through sexual selection having been transmitted to both sexes instead of to the males alone how the sense of beauty in its simplest form that is the reception of a peculiar kind of pleasure from certain colours forms and sounds was first developed in the mind of man and of the lower animals is a very obscure subject the same sort of difficulty is presented if we inquire how it is that certain flavours and odours give pleasures and others displeasure habit in all these cases appears to have come to a certain extent into play but there must be some fundamental cause in the constitution of the nervous system in each species natural selection cannot possibly produce any modification in a species exclusively for the good of another species though throughout nature one species incessantly takes advantage of and profits by the structures of others but natural selection can and does often produce structures for the direct injury of other animals as we see in the fang of the adder and in the ovipositor of the ichneumon by which its eggs are deposited in the living bodies of other insects if it could be proved that any part of the structure of any one species had been formed for the exclusive good of another species it would annihilate my theory for such could not have been produced through natural selection although many statements may be found in works on natural history to this effect i cannot find even one which seems to me of any weight it is admitted that the rattlesnake has a poisoned fang for its own defence and for the destruction of its prey but some authors suppose that at the same time it is furnished with a rattle for its own injury namely to warn its prey i would almost as soon believe that the cat curls the end of its tail when preparing to spring in order to warn the doomed mouse it is a much more probable view that the rattlesnake uses its rattle the cobra expands its frill and the puff adder swells while hissing so loudly and harshly in order to alarm the many birds and beasts which are known to attack even the most venomous species snakes act on the same principle which makes the hen ruffle her feathers and expand her wings when a dog approaches her chickens but i have not space here to enlarge on the many ways by which animals endeavour to frighten away their enemies natural selection will never produce in a being any structure more injurious than beneficial to that being for natural selection acts solely by and for the good of each no organ will be formed as paley has remarked for the purpose of causing pain or for doing an injury to its possessor if a fair balance be struck between the good and evil caused by each part each will be found on the whole advantageous after the lapse of time under changing conditions of life if any part comes to be injurious it will be modified or if it be not so the being will become extinct as myriads have become extinct 
natural selection tends only to make each organic being as perfect as or slightly more perfect than the other inhabitants of the same country with which it comes into competition and we see that this is the standard of perfection attained under nature the endemic productions of new zealand for instance are perfect one compared with another but they are now rapidly yielding before the advancing legions of plants and animals introduced from europe natural selection will not produce absolute perfection nor do we always meet as far as we can judge with this high standard under nature the correction for the aberration of light is said by muller not to be perfect even in that most perfect organ the human eye Hemholtz, whose judgment no one will dispute after describing in the strongest terms the wonderful powers of the human eye adds these remarkable words quote, that which we have discovered in the way of inexactness and imperfection in the optical machine and in the image on the retina is as nothing in comparison with the incongruities which we have just come across in the domain of the sensations one might say that nature has taken delight in accumulating contradictions in order to remove all foundation from the theory of a pre-existing harmony between the external and internal worlds if our reason leads us to admire with enthusiasm a multitude of inimitable contrivances in nature this same reason tells us though we may easily err on both sides that some other contrivances are the less perfect can we consider the sting of the bee as perfect which when used against many kinds of enemies cannot be withdrawn owing to the backward serratures and thus inevitably causes the death of the insect by tearing out its viscera if we look at the sting of the bee as having existed in a remote progenitor as a boring and serrated instrument like that in so many members of the same great order and that it has since been modified but not perfected for its present purpose with the poison originally adapted for some other object such as to produce galls since intensified we can perhaps understand how it is that the use of the sting should so often cause the insect's own death for if on the whole the power of stinging be useful to the social community it will fulfil all the requirements of natural selection though it may cause the death of some few members if we admire the truly wonderful power of scent by which the males of many insects find their females can we admire the production for this single purpose of thousands of drones which are utterly useless to the community for any other purpose and which are ultimately slaughtered by their industrious and sterile sisters it may be difficult but we ought to admire the savage instinctive hatred of the queen bee which urges her to destroy the young queens her daughters as soon as they are born or to perish herself in the combat for undoubtedly this is for the good of the community and maternal love or maternal hatred though the latter fortunately is most rare is all the same to the inexorable principles of natural selection if we admire the several ingenious contrivances by which orchids and many other plants are fertilized through insect agency can we consider as equally perfect 
the elaboration of dense clouds of pollen by our fir-trees so that a few granules may be wafted by chance onto the ovules summary the law of unity of type and of the conditions of existence embraced by the theory of natural selection we have in this chapter discussed some of the difficulties and objections which may be urged against the theory many of them are serious but i think that in the discussion light has been thrown on several facts which on the belief of independent acts of creation are utterly obscure we have seen that species at any one period are not indefinitely variable and are not linked together by a multitude of intermediate gradations partly because the process of natural selection is always very slow and at any one time acts only on a few forms and partly because the very process of natural selection implies the continual supplanting and extinction of preceding and intermediate gradations closely allied species now living on a continuous area must often have been formed when the area was not continuous and when the conditions of life did not insensibly graduate away from one part to another when two varieties are formed into districts of a continuous area an intermediate variety will often be formed fitted for an intermediate zone but from reasons assigned the intermediate variety will usually exist in lesser numbers than the two forms which it connects consequently the two latter during the course of further modification from existing in greater numbers will have a great advantage over the less numerous intermediate variety and will thus generally succeed in supplanting and exterminating it we have seen in this chapter how cautious we should be in concluding that the most different habits of life could not graduate into each other that a bat for instance could not have been formed by natural selection from an animal which at first only glided through the air we have seen that a species under new conditions of life may change its habits or it may have diversified habits with some very unlike those of its nearest congeners hence we can understand bearing in mind that each organic being is trying to live wherever it can live how it has arisen that there are upland geese with webbed feet ground woodpeckers diving thrushes and petrels with the habits of ox although the belief that an organ so perfect as the eye could have been formed by natural selection is enough to stagger any one yet in the case of any organ if we know of a long series of gradations in complexity each good for its possessor then under changing conditions of life there is no logical impossibility in the acquirement of any conceivable degree of perfection through natural selection in the cases in which we know of no intermediate or transitional states we should be extremely cautious in concluding that none can have existed for the metamorphoses of many organs show what wonderful changes in function are at least possible for instance a swim bladder has apparently been converted into an air-breathing lung 
the same organ having performed simultaneously very different functions and then having been in part or in whole specialized for one function and two distinct organs having performed at the same time the same function the one having been perfected whilst aided by the other must often have largely facilitated transitions we have seen that in two beings widely remote from each other in the natural scale organs serving for the same purpose and in external appearance closely similar may have been separately and independently formed but when such organs are closely examined essential differences in their structure can almost always be detected and this naturally follows from the principle of natural selection on the other hand the common rule throughout nature is infinite diversity of structure for gaining the same end and this again naturally follows from the same great principle in many cases we are far too ignorant to be enabled to assert that a part or organ is so unimportant for the welfare of a species that modifications in its structure could not have been slowly accumulated by means of natural selection in many other cases modifications are probably the direct result of the laws of variation or of growth independently of any good having been thus gained but even such structures have often as we may feel assured been subsequently taken advantage of and still further modified for the good of species under new conditions of life we may also believe that a part formerly of high importance has frequently been retained as the tail of an aquatic animal by its terrestrial descendants though it has become of such a small importance that it could not in its present state have been acquired by means of natural selection natural selection can produce nothing in one species for the exclusive good or injury of another though it may well produce parts organs and excretions highly useful or even indispensable or highly injurious to other species but in all cases at the same time useful to the possessor in each well-stocked country natural selection acts through the competition of the inhabitants and consequently leads to success in the battle for life only in accordance with the standard of that particular country hence the inhabitants of one country generally the smaller one often yield to the inhabitants of another and generally the larger country for in the larger country there will have existed more individuals and more diversified forms and the competition will have been severer and thus the standard of perfection will have been rendered higher natural selection will not necessarily lead to absolute perfection nor as far as we can judge by our limited faculties can absolute perfection be everywhere predicated on the theory of natural selection we can clearly understand the full meaning of that old canon in natural history quote, natura non facit saltum this canon if we look to the present inhabitants alone of the world is not strictly correct but if we include all those of past times whether known or unknown 
it must on this theory be strictly true it is generally acknowledged that all organic beings have been formed on two great laws unity of type and the conditions of existence by unity of type is meant that fundamental agreement in structure which we see in organic beings of the same class and which is quite independent of their habits of life on my theory unity of type is explained by unity of descent the expression of conditions of existence so often insisted on by the illustrious cuvet is fully embraced by the principle of natural selection for natural selection acts by either now adapting the varying parts of each being to its organic and inorganic conditions of life or by having adapted them during past periods of time the adaptations being aided in many cases by the increased use or disuse of parts being affected by the direct action of external conditions of life and subjected in all cases to the several laws of growth and variation hence in fact the law of the conditions of existence is the higher law as it includes through the inheritance of former variations and adaptations that of unity of type End of chapter 6, part 2